Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome here. So glad to have you. Today is Sunday, April 7th, 2019, and we're going to be studying today Bethel New Testament number two, The Word Became Flesh. Or we're going to study in um, 50 minutes approximately uh, what mankind has been studying for over 2,000 years. So we're going to put that into 50 minutes, hopefully. The Incarnation, how in the world could that be? And so we're going to study that today, and hopefully it'll at least give you food for thought. Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this time together. Uh, Please give us wisdom to address this really incomprehensible topic. Uh, All we can say is thank you. We can't explain it. We can just receive it and show you our undying gratitude in the way that uh, we receive the Spirit that transforms us so that uh, we get the mind of Christ and behave in ways that you intended for us in the beginning. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, for those of you who have read ahead a little bit or if you read Swigum's notes uh, once you get home, uh, he does a great job as always, I believe. Uh, But what you're going to find is that he addresses and focuses on who is Jesus Christ? And that is really an important topic, and we're going to spend some time on that today for sure. But I think with our Western way of thinking, what really is going to help us to understand and appreciate and then really to minister to others about the um, incarnation, about the whole gospel, but the incarnation, of course, is uh, the central part of it, is why? Why the incarnation? Why would God do that? And that's a very Greek thought. It's not very Hebrew. Very Greek. We want to know why. And so I'm going to spend some time on that today. But really, we have spent um, really about eight months studying why. You can say a lot of things about the um, Old Testament study. It does a lot of things for us. For example, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for training and teaching and rebuking and correcting and training for righteousness. So it's very, very useful for all those things. But one of the many things that it does is it teaches us why we needed God to come here in human form. And um, there are so many fabulous things that I have noticed and as I've studied the Bible and so on for quite a while and uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer so it comes to me a little bit slower sometimes. But to pick Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as the person to go out and minister to the Gentiles was so brilliant in so many ways. But one of the ways that people don't always pick up on right away is he was a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he grew up in a Greek culture as opposed to a Palestinian Jew, which all the, all the disciples were, all the original disciples were, uh, we're all disciples. Disciple is nothing more than a student of Jesus Christ, and every one of us are disciples. Um, 
but all the apostles, apostolos in Greek just means the one sent. So there were only 12 of them. They had to spend their, the entire career, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ with him and be witnesses of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's what an apostle had to be. Now, there were many apostles, but there were 12 that were chosen. They were very, very Jewish in the way they thought. Their whole worldview was steeped in Judaism. The apostle Paul, he's an, he calls himself an apostle, and he makes an argument why he's an apostle. Um, he grew up in a very, very Greek environment. In fact, more than 50% of the philosophers from Athens went to Tarsus when there was a purge of philosophers in Athens when they backed the wrong horse in uh, a battle against Rome. Rome came in and uh, got rid of all the intellectuals, basically, in Athens. And they ended up in Tarsus. Uh, and so Tarsus was a rival, at that matter of fact, at this time, the time of Paul, around the beginning of that millennium, uh, Tarsus was the academic center of, uh, of the area, the only one passing it, Alexandria in Egypt. But what Paul does as a result of growing up in this uh, very, very Greek culture is he is like a bridge for us to Western thought and very, very Orthodox Judaism, because he was an Orthodox Jew for sure. We're going to talk about him when we talk about the church. But the point is, is that he connects the two, and he, and he quotes uh, pagan philosophers a number of times in his letters. But the reason I go through all of that is because, remember the silent years that were anything but silent? We had a renaissance of literature in Greece and other places like that. And um, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is to take a look at Homer. The author, uh, well, the person associated with, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know that the Iliad and the Odyssey was sung for at least 100 years before it was reduced to writing. Um, and so the thought is, is that the person who was singing the three-day uh, uh, Odyssey and Iliad at uh, religious festivals, that uh, that was Homer. That's what we thought. But in any case, there are lots of things to learn from the Iliad and the Odyssey. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about it is that Homer makes fun of the gods in some places. He makes them look foolish, petty, immoral in many ways, and laughable in many cases. And the reason he does that is because he wants to show that these gods cannot be noble. They cannot be courageous. Why? Because they can't die. They're immortal. And so they can't show those virtues that we as humans value so highly, which is the putting our life on the line for injury or being maimed. Gods can't be injured or maimed, at least in their uh, mythology. And so that's what was thought of gods eventually, and that's why a lot of people turned into you know, what you might call atheists, practical atheists, because they said, these gods, they can't 
really be courageous the way we can be because we've got a lot to lose. I thought that was a profound insight by Homer. Uh, the actual written Odyssey and Iliad is about 750 B.C. Christianity answers that question by God taking human form and coming down here as a human being who, just like every one of us, can feel, can, it gets tired, has emotions, uh, and uh, can feel pain, can fear death. And so he, Jesus connects with us in a, in a way no other God ever has. Also, there's, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, there are these strange dreams that God gave many, many people, really all the people throughout uh, the earth, no matter how savage or what we call savage, <laughs> uh, primitive in their own ways compared to us, we think, uh, in different parts of the world, these strange dreams about a God that comes to earth as a man and dies, and somehow there's some redemptive consequence to that. And it's all over the place. So I think that it's just wonderful that we have that. But today, what I'm going to talk about a little bit, probably half the class, is why the incarnation. And so I, I, because I wanted to be sure that we didn't lose anything, I handed out the agenda to you. You can take a look at it. And um, it's entitled, The Agenda for Bethel II. And it's two-sided. The second side we're going to get to in a minute. But the, uh, the top one here is the agenda for Bethel II. Why the incarnation? And God loves and cares for man. And that is, is very, very important that we understand that, that God cares for man. He cares for man a great deal. And on the front of the second sheet that I hand out, it's entitled, The Love God Has for Man. And I wanted to go through these with you just to give you an idea of, you know, what exactly is the relationship between God and man? And what does the Bible say about it? Well, in Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this whole phrase, in his own image, he created humanity in his own image. There's been a ton of ink spilled trying to explain what that means. And there's probably a lot of dimensions to that. But let me just throw this out as one of the many, many meanings of that. God wanted companionship. God wanted companionship. So you, in order to have companionship with somebody, they have to be somebody like you. Or at least someone who kind of thinks like you. And so he made somebody who he could interact with, who he could talk with, who could love him. And, of course, he loves his creation no matter what, but he wanted someone who could love him back. And the only way that he could make somebody who could love him back is to give somebody free will. You know, it's no good to have a bunch of creations like the Stepford Wives that love you no matter what. They're a bunch of robots. But when I come home, when Betty goes over to our grandkids' house and little Reed runs up and throws her arms around us, that just melts our hearts. If she's a little robot and does that, so what? 
but she does that out of her own free will. That's what God wants. Somebody who thinks somewhat along the way that he does. That's how I see that. Genesis 3.8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This gives an idea of man's original relationship with God. They communed with each other. They, in the beautiful image of walking through this gorgeous garden in a beautiful time of the day just before sunset. And that's how they spent time together. Now, does that remind you of one of the Bethel lessons? Bethel number two, right? Divine intentions. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now listen to that. I have drawn you. Isn't that fascinating? Like an architect draws a building. Or a draftsman draws a building. He created us. He created us with loving kindness. Psalm 8, 3 through 6. Listen to what David says. Just an absolute wonder and awe. When I consider your heavens, God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor and glory. Incredible blessings from God. And then, of course, Psalm 23. Who could forget that? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, notice this. He turns from the third person. He leads me beside quiet waters to the first person. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, you are with me. It becomes very intimate. When he really needs God, he knows he's there. In John 3, 16, 17, For God so loved the world, the entire world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans eight thirty eight through 39. For <clears throat> I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is the love, describes the love that God has for us. Now, so that is the second point here, is that God wants fellowship with man also. Yet, 
as the Old Testament shows, man continually rebelled against God. And that really is a large part of what the Old Testament's all about. And so in the cycles of degeneration, which I think is on the back of the first sheet, what I did is I just put this down here as a reminder to you of what happens to mankind just over and over again. God gives man this opportunity in, this, in the garden. It's a beautiful place. And man gives, uh, God gives man free will to do many things, and in, in, including enjoying these exquisite pleasures of every kind in the garden. But mankind goes off on his own, basically wanting to what you might call pervert that free will that ultimately has a goal of making himself totally independent of God, making himself his own God is essentially what happens. I want to call the shots, God. I don't want to be submissive to you is what happens over and over again. And we have these cycles throughout the Old Testament that show the same thing happening over and over again. It's as though God is showing us in the Old Testament, do you see what happens when I leave you to your own? I give you a clean slate, ask you to start all over again, and here's how it ends up every single time. You need a helper. So we got the Adam and Eve story. Then we got Cain and Abel. Then we got Cain, should be an eye there, sorry. Then we got Cain to Lamech. Lamech is the one that said, God said he'll protect Cain was seven times, but me, 77 times. Then Seth to Lamech, that's a different Lamech, that's not the same one, uh, shows the degeneration from Seth, which was a new start. That was Adam and Eve's third son. Then the table of nations is given in Genesis 10, where we go hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps, in our geological time, in the uh, population of the land. Then the Tower of Babel. This shows in the Old Testament, this is basically the end of prehistory. And this is mankind trying to basically make themselves equal to God by going up with this ziggurat, as they call it, this pyramid, and um, trying to understand God in their own way or become their own God. Then Moses and the Exodus. Uh, we have hundreds of years that pass. Um, and uh, in between that time, of course, is the whole covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you have 430 years of slavery in Egypt. And Moses comes along and you have the Exodus with Exodus 3 through Deuteronomy 34. And we see the rebellion over and over again in the wilderness, even though the people have been freed from slavery. And we hear those uh, Israelites in the desert saying things like, Moses, were there not enough graves available in Egypt? You have to bring us out here to die? That's why the Jews are the best comedians. You have that all the way through the, the Old Testament. <laughs> they are really funny. And so then you've got uh, them saying, you know, I hate this stuff, this manna, and this quail is just awful. Back in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and cucumbers and all these wonderful, completely forgetting their abject slavery and putting that aside, forgetting how bad it was. So we see that kind of rebellion all the way through. 
Uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy, in a couple of chapters toward the end of that book, is a, a really a, a tremendous description, I think it's about chapters 28 and 29, of the blessings, once they enter Canaan, of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And it's really, really illuminating to read that. Then the conquest and the judges cycle. The judges show that the people would obey God. And they obeyed God pretty much during the whole lifetime of Joshua, who led them in for the conquest. But once Joshua died and the next generation died, they didn't pass on the whole uh, legacy of God's working in their lives. And what they found is that they degenerated and they started worshiping other gods in the vicinity. They kept on kind of a, a lukewarm worshiping of Yahweh, their their God, but they would worship the other gods around them also. And so God would raise up local nations, or local tribes really, to come in and plunder them and punish them. And then a judge would rise up and uh, rally the Israelites, and they would uh, move these uh, plunderers out. And then they would come back and they would repent, uh, and they would have a generation or two that followed God. But then the cycle started all over again. So we had 300 years where this cycle, very predictable and repeated cycle of degeneracy, punishment, repentance, and then redemption by uh, a leader that was uh, given the spirit by God temporarily, and then following God in obedience. And remember that uh, handout that I gave you of uh, the cycle of civilization? Remember that? by uh, that dean of the law school. Well, that's what happened in kind of miniature during the period of the judges. Then we had the United Kingdom under the three kings. And here you had three exemplary individuals, Saul, David, and Solomon. They were tremendous people in their own way. And every one of them ended up failing terribly. Even David, who is called a man after God's own heart, ended up committing about the worst series of sins you can do. Um, Laziness, staying at home when he should be at war. Adultery. Murder. Cover-up. And lying. And he was found out, of course, And as a result, his whole family life became a total disaster. Three of his sons rebelled against him. And he lost, really, his whole moral authority in Israel, is really what we read in Kings, uh, at the end of 2 Samuel and the beginning of Kings. So, such a tremendous start with David, and such an ignominious, uh, really sad ending. Here we have this this incredible, virile, vigorous young David who beat Goliath, who was over nine feet tall and could have taken David and broken him up into pieces if he had gotten his hands on him. And David beat him and told Saul, he said, I have killed the bear and the lion. I can kill this infidel. I don't want to wear your, your armor. Thank you, it doesn't fit. I'm a 38 regular, you're a 52 long. doesn't fit. And so... That's the beginning of David. He's just a tremendous character, but he ends up dying at 70 
impotent, weak, hiring a 13-year-old Abishag as a, uh, a, a blanket, you might say, an electric blanket. No sex, just lying in the cavity of his body and keeping him warm. 13, 14-year-old girl. And that's how he ended up dying. And so then we have Solomon, started out really great, wisest man ever. And yet at the end, with 300 wives and 700 concubines, um, he was turned aside by the uh, woman he married who were not uh, followers of the Israel God and convinced him to follow other gods. And so he really fell into a terrible apostasy. And those are the three best kings that they had. So you see over and over again, God is saying, do you see what happens when I let you do it? You can't do it. So that's one of the lessons we learned from the Old Testament. Then the divided kingdom, 20 kings in Israel, the northern kingdom, 20 kings in Judah, the southern kingdom. And of course, that's a complete mess. Out of those 40 kings, there's only eight that are considered good. And then we have the exile. And then we have uh, a little description of the post-exilic existence of Israel uh, in Malachi. This is after they got back and after the temple was rebuilt and after the walls were rebuilt. And it talks about how their worship had degraded terribly. So again, even though they came back from really a, a wonderful life in terms of physical safety and pleasure and having all the conveniences of civilization in Babylon to this really horrible situation in Jerusalem, they were really what you might call the remnant. They degraded also. So God's resolution was in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And there... Because we, we, what we have described here, we, we've described so much bad governance is really what we have here. And in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, let's see what, they, what uh, God promises here. <clears throat> he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So we're finally going to have somebody who rules competently and justly coming. That's the promise of the Messiah. So, God came to earth as a man, Jesus of Nazareth, to save mankind and restore a right relationship. Why? One of the better descriptions is right here in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So why did Jesus come? 
Jesus came, that is to say, God came in Jesus' form, in the form of a man, to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. That relationship that was described in the beginning in uh, Old Testament 2, divine intentions, that is what is intended to be restored, reconciled to God. That's why Jesus came. That's the why of it all. Okay, so now we get to really what Swiggum's talking about. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Now, I've put up here the scriptures that I'm going to read here. Uh, I didn't have time to uh, make copies of this, but uh, you can make a picture of this and, and look at it on your own. But Jesus makes certain claims of himself, and then others make claims for Jesus. So let me just read some of these to you. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John 8.19, Jesus says, Then they, that is to say the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures, then they asked him, Where is your Father? And then Jesus says, You do not know me or my Father. Jesus replied, If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus says in John 12, 44 through 45, Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. John 14, uh, or let me put uh, John 14, 9 through 10. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Then Jesus says in John eight fifty eight, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Those last two words, I am, are very, very pregnant in meaning because all those who were listening to him would have known what he was referring to. He was referring to Exodus three thirteen through 14, when Moses is being spoken to by God out of the burning bush, and he says, God is saying, go to Egypt and let all my people go. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let, let my people go out into the desert. And Moses is saying, well, who am I? The Pharaoh's going to listen to him. And what about the Jews? They're going to say, who are you? To say this and tell us to get in trouble by, by leaving Egypt. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And they asked me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus said that in John eight fifty eight, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew exactly what he was referring to. He's referring to that in Exodus. Then John 5, 45 through 46, 
Jesus is having a debate with these religious scholars. And in the course of that debate, toward the end of it, when they're just very obstinate and won't accept anything he says, he says to them, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. And then similarly in John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says, You know, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And that should be connected with Luke 24, 25 through 27. And this is where post-resurrection... Jesus meets up with these two travelers to Emmaus. And they become traveling companions and they have dinner together. And during that dinner, and the discussion they're having with each other, and the, the two travelers say, you know, we thought that this Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, but, you know, he died on a cross, so whoever heard of a crucified Messiah, so I guess it wasn't him. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. <clears throat> then... Some of the things that others have said about Jesus, the unknown author of Hebrews, he says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. This is Paul writing. He, Jesus, is the image of the, individual, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things uh, hold together. And Colossians, uh, let me go on to, uh, well, I have Colossians 2 9 here. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Then we have. Uh, in John uh, 1, 1 through 5, we have the wonderful prologue uh, to the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, we have to 
think for a minute, what does Jesus mean? In this case, this isn't Jesus speaking. But what is meant, what do you think the scriptures mean by light? By light. Well, first of all, we have to think about what the opposite of light is. It's darkness. And if you are in darkness, even if it's your own home, and you're getting up to get a glass of water in the middle of the night, and you get up and it's pitch dark, you don't see the surrounding areas. It's unfamiliar to you, even though you might remember it. You can still stub your toe someplace. So when he talks about light, what he's talking about is giving you the gift of a worldview of truth that you truly understand things in a godly way, that you see things correctly. As a result, you're able to make good judgments as you develop that gift of a more accurate worldview. Okay? So, for example, we have developed from that crazy book of several decades ago, Looking Out for Number One. That's the key to success. Well, it didn't really last that long because we know it's untrue. That's not the way to success. Something much closer that has been on the bestseller list for over 40 years is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is very, very service-oriented. It is a win-win situation. It is how to get along with people, that honey is better than vinegar in terms of dealing with people. And interestingly enough, in that book, uh, The Seven Habits, the first three habits are personal victories. That is to say, how to discipline yourself and how to teach yourself certain things. The very first one being taking personal responsibility. And then the last three are dealing with other people. And uh, so, you know, that comes in, you know, think win-win and um, uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood, and to synergize. Work with other people. Teamwork. And then the seventh habit is sharpen the sword. Sharpen the saw. Sharpen the saw. So you go back and you practice these things. It's not one and done. Go back and practice them over and over again. So that is much closer to what we would read in Proverbs. That that is to say a godly way of thinking. So that's light. Is having a proper worldview. It's very important. Because after this... In uh, John eight twelve, we read, I am the light of the world. This is Jesus speaking. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a promise that is. That you're going to understand the mysteries of life. At least you'll be able to see them. Whether or not you follow them is different. And it's going to be hard because we're very often... Uh, unable to uh, make the adjustment. Sometimes we don't want to make the adjustment. Sometimes the adjustment is difficult uh, to make. And uh, Plato has this fantastic allegory called the allegory of the cave. He has Socrates teaching his disciples. And the the, uh, allegory is basically that humankind is typified by these people sitting in a cave. 
and they are all fettered with chains. They don't realize they are, but they are. They're fettered by chains, and their heads are uh, stationary. They also are fettered by some kind of restraint, and all they can do is look at a wall. And on that wall, behind them, casts shadows. There's a fire behind them they can't see, and there's activity going on that they can't see, but that activity of people and animals and different things is cast on the wall, and that's all they see are the shadows. And they believe, because that's all they've seen, that's all their parents have talked about, that's reality. That is reality to them. And so they make all sorts of uh, prizes and contests about uh, how who can figure out what's going to happen next with these shadows and so on and so forth. And they have a whole civilization based on that worldview. One of the people gets loose from these fetters and turns around and sees a light behind him and so starts walking up toward it. Now, this is, of course, Plato is writing at 380 B.C. and so has never heard of Christianity and doesn't even know any Jews. But he is... This person is walking toward the sun, which is a metaphor for God. It's called the ultimate good. And he's walking toward that, and he gets blinded by the light. And he finds that this is the ultimate good. And he's just ecstatic. And he's so glad to be here. And they say, yes, that's great, but now you need to go back and tell them. And so, just as his eyes are getting used to this blinding light, he's now got to turn around and go back into the darkness. And he does. And of course, as you know what happens when you've been in the, in the light so tremendously, and your pupils have really dilated, I mean, gotten so small, that in the darkness you can't see at all. So he stumbles and finds his way back to these people down there, and he tells them what he found. Well, now this was one of the champion thinkers, during the time of shadows, now he's a total moron because he can't see anything. And they say, well, look, what, what do you think about that shadow? He said, I really can't see it. And so, but he keeps on saying, but that is the light. That is the truth. This is up here. This is all false. This is wrong. It's imaginary. And they kill him because he's, he pesters them so much about what the truth is. Then, at the end of this allegory, Socrates is walking up, and he walked around a lot, this is the way he taught, and Adamantus and Glaucon, his two disciples at that time, uh, they're talking to him, and then he gets to uh, the top of the hill as kind of a metaphor, and he says, you know what, this is as far as I can take you, meaning the teaching on this particular topic, this is as far as I can take you, but you know what, maybe someday someone will come that can take you the rest of the way. That's the kind of literature that came out of the silent years. <laughs> and why I love so much reading that kind of literature. So, then, as Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anybody who follows me will not walk in darkness. Then we read Isaiah uh, 49.6, way back then. Here's what he says. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. In other words, you'll bring knowledge and truth to the Gentiles. Now, this was <clears throat> encouragement and actually a command to the Israelites. That was the Israelites' job, was to be a missionary to the rest of the world. That was their job. And they did a horrible job of it. 
Messed it up horribly. But Jesus was ultimately the fulfillment of Israel's job. That's the way Jesus should be viewed from a Jewish point of view. That's how Paul saw him. Paul believed the entire Hebrew Scriptures totally. In their entirety. And he was a tremendous scholar in that area. But he realized, as a result of the road to Damascus, that he had totally misinterpreted it. Even though he knew it, he completely missed it with Jesus Christ. He actually stood and watched the coats of people who were stoning one of the disciples of Jesus, Stephen, who was giving an accurate description of how the, how the Old Testament resulted in Jesus. I used to, in my complete ignorance, used to look down on Stephen's speech, saying, this, this speech is not very good. Um, it, it hardly talks about Jesus at all. It just talks about the Old Testament. It shows that if you don't understand something or you think something's bad in the Bible, it's your fault. It's not the Bible's fault. Just give it time and it'll be revealed to you. What Stephen was doing was Stephen was explaining the Old Testament and how Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises. But he was stoned and killed before he could really expand a whole lot more on Jesus. And then as Isaiah 9-2, we read, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So that, uh, th th those are the claims of Jesus Christ. Those are the claims of Jesus Christ. Now, in the area that Swiggum spends quite a bit of time on in chapter 16 of Matthew, um, Jesus takes his three favorite disciples, uh, apostles, up to Caesarea Philippi. And he goes up to a place that was called Panaeus. That's not in the Bible, but that's where he went. There's a, there's a cave at a place called Panaeus. Today it's called Banaeus with a B. And it's a favorite place to go uh, on Israel trips. Um, when Betty and I went there in 2013, we went there. It is a beautiful, beautiful, bucolic place. Creeks, greenery, lakes. It is gorgeous. Caves and so on. But it's just right inside Syria. And so it's in the northernmost part of uh, the area conquered by Joshua. And it's at the base of a place called Mount Hermon, which is a pretty big mountain. It's about 9,200 feet high, which in, in Israel is pretty high. And that's where he goes. And while he's there, and the disciples are wondering why he brought him up there, because... It is the birthplace of all sorts of pagan religions. Lots and lots of temples up there to pagan religions. Remember, it's not part of Israel. In fact, that is considered to be the birthplace of Pan. And Pan is the offspring of Hermes and a wood nymph. And Pan was so ugly, the myth goes, that his mother screamed at seeing him for the first time and ran off, leaving him alone. So he was brought up by the animals. And he is the god of nature, Pan. 
So that's where we get Peter Pan. And so he is the god of nature. And that's the most famous god out there, but there's a whole bunch of other gods. So here Jesus is with his disciples in an environment very, very different from what they were in in Jerusalem, which is steeped in Orthodox Judaism. Very, very righteous, or at least self-righteous. And all, the, all through um, Galilee, too. They're very, very uh, devout there as well in Judaism. But here, and, and so even being around an idol was considered to be defiling. So it's as though up there he is putting himself in this environment of every other God that there is. And that's where he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say, you know, you're one of the prophets, come back to life. And then he says, but you, who do you say I am? And I'm imagining that there was silence. And finally, Peter, I love Peter, (laughs) always the impetuous one, bold. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Ben-Jonah, because this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by God. Every single one of us have to answer this question, which is asked by Pilate. Of the Jews, the mob of Jews that are standing in front of the praetorium where Jesus underwent interrogation by Pilate, Pilate found nothing worthy of death, the death sentence in Jesus at all. And he says to the Jews, he said, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do? And of course they all say crucify him. And Every single one of us have to answer that question. And so I want to read to you a little something I think you'll find interesting. And um, this is by C.S. Lewis. And this may take about three or four minutes, but I think it's worth it. He says, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was that the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why I can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended, 
Civilizations are built up, excellent institutions devised, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people back to the top and it all slides back into into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right again and runs a few yards and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us. So what did God do? Well, he did a bunch of things, gave us a conscience and that kind of thing. But then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let's get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or that he was one with God. There'd be nothing really unusual about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see it for what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you uh, for treading on another man's toes or stealing another man's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give this kind of conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken, and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is a strange and significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he's humble and meek, And we believe him, not noticing that if he really were a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that some people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now we don't really have time to go through it in detail. But I also left you a uh, diagram, you might say, uh, call it a decision tree, um, by Josh McDowell. And uh, look at that on your own. Uh, it really is a nice decision tree that is, follows C.S. Lewis's line of thinking very, very well. So let me close today by asking, um, on the back there, if you would sign. I got it. I got it. You got everybody? Sign. Sign. What, what am I supposed to just do? Just put your name. Just put your name on just there. Just like under mine? Yeah. So if you haven't done it already, please put your name on the sheet that's being passed down there. And I have one for the back rows back there, if you like. Okay. Okay, great. Let me, uh, let me close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this incredible revelation of your great love for us, which actually you've told us from immemorial time. And we sometimes have a hard time accepting that because we know that we're so depraved. How could you possibly love us? But you do. And you love us so much that you sent Jesus Christ even as we were sinners. Help us to uh, think about this, understand it, and help, it to, help us to be influenced by this uh, tremendous truth in the way that we think and speak and serve other people. Your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.